0: This is the Review of Democracy, the platform of the CEU's Democracy Institute, where we discuss some of the most exciting new publications on the past, present, and future of democracies. My name is Ferenc Lotso, I will be your host today, and it is my distinct pleasure to introduce Joseph Wong. Welcome to the show, Professor
1: Wong. Ah, Thank you. I'm really happy to be here. Thanks so much for the invitation.
0: Great to have you at the Review of Democracy. Joseph Wong is Vice President International at the University of Toronto in Canada. He is a professor of political science at the same university, and also the Ross and Ralph Halbert Professor of Innovation at the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy. Professor Wong has published numerous essential books and scholarly articles. His recent and ongoing research projects focus on health, democracy, and development, as well as on questions of poverty and innovation, among other subjects. Following the release of his monographs, Healthy Democracies and Betting on Biotech, Joseph Wong has just co-authored a fascinating new book with Dan Slater, entitled From Development to Democracy. The Transformations of Modern Asia, which I have read with great interest and pleasure, and which taught me a great deal I didn't know before. Now this new book of yours explores what you call developmental Asia, Professor Wong. And you make a crucial distinction between democracy through strength and democracy through weakness on its pages. So as an introductory question of sorts, would you mind elucidating what you two mean by developmental Asia and by democracy through strength? And more generally, how do you combine a political science approach with the study of political history in this book?
1: Well, friends, those are great questions. And uh, I think it's a great way to sort of preface what the book is trying to do and and I'll I'll answer it in two ways the first is we wanted to be sure that the title had included both the words development and democracy so this is a book and as you've read it you'll know it's it's not just a book about democratic transition or the prospects of democratic transition in asia it is equally a book about development and about economic and social development in the region, and and so and we call the region developmental Asia as a way of, uh, you know, as a sort of inclusion criteria. The cases that we're interested in are those cases that have socioeconomically developed uh, over the last, um, you know, seventy years or so, right? And so we exclude cases that have not undergone what we see to be a developmental transformation, uh, but rather we include those um, that have. And in some ways, this is actually a nod to modernization theory, right? Um, as we lay out at the very beginning of the book, there is a there is there is a relationship between development and democracy. Um, you know, it's modernization theory, of course, itself uh, is open to a lot of criticisms, and we acknowledge all of those. But this relationship between development and democracy, which is a long-standing one that we have seen in the literature, is something that we just could not ignore. So we really wanted to unpack what the relationship between development and democracy was. And so in the book, you know, you'll learn, for instance, uh, or you'll read about in the case of, you know, Taiwan and Korea, you'll read about you know, how these economies went from agricultural economies to industrial economies and how they've industrially diversified and so forth. You'll read the same in terms of Malaysia and Singapore and and Myanmar and China and so forth. In fact, we devote you know, almost two chapters to the case of China because it's such an important case. And so you get a real sense of the kind of developmental trajectories and developmental successes that each of these cases, and we have 12 of them that are covered in the book, the developmental successes that each of them have. Now the the challenge with modernization theory and the link between development and democracy is that there is you know that there is oftentimes a very lazy equation that development necessarily equals democracy as though the kinds of structural changes that development brings about you know the transformation of labor markets the transformation of an economy the creation of a thickening middle class, a more literate society, a more mobile society and so forth, that somehow that automatically, these structural changes automatically translate into um, democracy. And uh, you know, in the book, while we talk a lot about these large scale developmental forces and structural transformations that take place, we equally focus on the very uh, individuals that ultimately make choices regarding democratic transition, or in some cases, democratic avoidance. Right. So ultimately, it's not structural forces that choose democracy, rather it's individuals, uh, individual leaders that make these decisions that will result in democracy. So just as much as we talk about industrial diversification in Taiwan, we're also talking about the very individual calculations that then President Jiang Jingguo makes, for instance, or as you you know, as you recall in the book, there's quite a lengthy discussion on the kinds of conversations that Chen Duhuan and Te Wu are having in the summer of 1987 as they are as individuals deciding to make decisions, make choices uh, that lead to democratic transition. And so, you know, people are individuals, leaders, incumbent conservative leaders are making these decisions. What The book is also trying to understand is under what conditions do they make these decisions? And the argument we make is that actually in Asia, uh, the modal pathway for democracy is what we call democracy through strength. The standard account of democratization, particularly third wave democracies, is that democracy emerges from the ashes of a collapsed regime, a completely delegitimated authoritarian regime that collapses under the weight of its own illegitimacy you know, from the detritus of that collapse regime, then do we see pro-democratic forces arising or the pro-democratic forces that caused that revolution in the first place. That's not really how democracy unfolds in developmental Asia. Actually in developmental Asia, what we see, and the best case example of this is in Taiwan, is that we actually see very strong regime, in many ways, legitimate regimes, um, uh, popular regimes, conceding democratic reforms at a time when they were still very powerful, that they continued to hold the reins of power quite steadfastly. And it wasn't the result of a bottom-up revolution. And this is what we mean by democracy through strength. So in the case of Taiwan, for instance, you have, and Taiwan really was the puzzle that led to Uh, to to actually writing the whole book and and, and writing the the initial article that we wrote in Perspectives on Politics, is here you have a regime in the mid-1980s that is by every measure uh, a horrible autocratic regime, but one that nonetheless concedes democratic reform. For instance, the formation of an opposition party, lifting a martial law in 1987, the introduction of free and fair Legislative elections in '92 and then founding presidential elections in '96, it concedes all of these democratic reforms when the ruling party is actually still in a position of strength, and that's what we're trying to understand here. So if you think about it, then the very party that was the source of autocracy actually becomes the agent of democratic transformation, and that's the um, that's the the intuition that we. Um, uncover across a range of cases um, in Asia. Again, Taiwan is the best case example, but it's, uh, it's indicative of the kind of pathway that we see in the region.
0: That's fascinating and provides a great introduction to the book and also to our conversation today. But I wanted to ask you a fairly general question next. Why would authoritarians choose to democratize to begin with and when do they actually do so based on the rich evidence you have gathered and analyzed in this book? In other words, could I ask you to speak a bit to the roles played by confidence and by signals in your explanation?
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So I guess the, the, the pithy way to answer it is to say that um, autocrats will concede democracy, but they're not necessarily conceding defeat. So the argument we make is that actually um, leading democratic transition, initiating democratic transition, can be incentive compatible for autocratic regimes that look to maintain their hold on political power. In other words, it's in their best interest, actually to democratize. And so, you know, as you'll note in the book, I've just described how Taiwan is the best case example of democracy through strength, but you might have found it a little puzzling that we actually begin our empirical analysis by looking at Japan, which, you know, in by many accounts would actually be a consummate case of democracy through weakness or or the implantation of democracy by an external power on uh, a politically weakened political system, as in the case of post-war Japan. And it's there's no denying that the American occupation played an extremely important role in, uh, in hastening democratic reform in Japan. But as we show in the book, actually, you know, these conservative incumbents who are by no means Democrats, right? Uh, when asked initially to draft a constitution, they actually drafted a copy of the Meiji constitution. I mean, essentially MacArthur was like, you know, what just happened here? We asked you to draft a democratic constitution and you come back with the same monarchist authoritarian leaning constitution <laughs> that led to, um, you know, contributed to the rise of fascism in the 1930s, this isn't gonna work. So these, these incumbent conservatives are not Democrats. But it's pretty clear to them after 1946 that actually democracy serves their interests, that democracy, particularly the rules of the democratic game, and indeed the reverse course policy that the the Americans unleashed after 1947, actually advantages the conservatives. And so in their minds, um, conceding democratic reform is not tantamount to conceding their defeat or their political obsolescence. In fact, conceding democracy helps them stay in power. And indeed, we see in the case of Japan, the consolidation of the conservatives in 1955. And of course the LDP continues to rule Japan for nearly four decades. So democracy works for for conservative incumbents. That's the Japan case. And that's why we wanted to put that first because even here, arguably the toughest case to make, is one in which we see incentive compatibility between democracy uh, and the incumbent ruling party, or in this case incumbent conservatives that that passed through the war. Um, The argument that we make with respect to later democratizers is that they are more likely to choose a pathway of democracy through strength when they have both victory confidence, that is to say that they have accumulated enough strength They have a developmental record, uh, and hence, you know, a lot of the developmental states of the region are prime candidates for democracy through strength. They have enough antecedent accumulated strengths that they have confidence that if they were to concede democratic reform, i.e. the institutionalization of free and fair elections, they would win. So they need to have that kind of confidence to begin with. But more important or just as importantly, they also need to have stability confidence. They need to have the expectation that if they were to democratize under those circumstances, that stability as opposed to instability would ensue. Because after all, and again, one of the key points of the book is that development and democracy have to go hand in hand. Democracy will only survive and thrive if development delivered through a stable political economic system Uh, continues unabated. So the regime is responding not so much to revolutionary threats, but rather uh, proactively acting on stability and victory expectations. Now, as you point out, these regimes have to receive signals, right? I mean, why would a regime, an authoritarian regime, ever consider this pathway if it seems to be able to hold on to power Uh, and in an unassailable grip on political power. And the argument we make in the book is that, well, first of all, no authoritarian regime lasts forever because forever is a very long time. And that at some point, authoritarian regimes will confront signals that they have passed the apex of power. And we go into very close detail in terms of what these different signals are and suggest listeners to take a look at the book to really unpack these. But they'll receive signals that they've passed the apex of power, that they remain extremely powerful, uh, but that their hold on power is no longer unassailable. And it's precisely at that time that it makes the most sense. It's the most incentive compatible for these regimes to concede democracy. And as we point out in the article uh, from back in 2013, this is the paradox of democracy through strength which is to say the very regimes or parties that are strong enough to maintain their authoritarian grip on power are in fact the ones that are most likely and most poised to pursue democracy through strength. And that's the paradox that lies at the heart of the book.
0: Now, one of the major ways in which you augment modernization theory in the book is by exploring how types of development shape regime types, right? You clearly underline that types rather than levels of development have led to different prospects for democratization in modern Asia. And you demonstrate this connection by exploring 12 countries, as you mentioned, which you assign to four distinct clusters. So could I ask you to briefly introduce the types of political economies in developmental Asia, and how countries belonging to your four clusters may have experimented with democratic reforms and democratic transitions? And more generally, why would developmental clustering matter so much in this respect?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. That's a big question. Um, You know, one of the things that we wanted to do in this book was that we wanted to have the 12 cases speak to each other. Dan is, you know, as you know, he's a a world renowned expert on Southeast Asian politics and political economy. And my work has tended to focus on Northeast Asia. And indeed the field has tended to separate the region uh, along these Cartesian lines, that there is some geographical differentiation between these cases. And what, what we wanted to do was, was to sort of smash that bifurcation, and we wanted the cases to speak to each other in ways that weren't limited to their geographical position. We also wanted to and indeed, this is one of the confounding things about modernization theory, is that, you know level of economic development doesn't necessarily equate uh, with democratic prospects. Indeed, we see quite wealthy modern societies that have uh, managed to avoid democracy, uh, Singapore is a great example. And then we've seen some very poor economies that are on a developmental track, but uh, not nearly as wealthy or as having attained a level of economic development of, say, Singapore, places like Myanmar are actually experimenting, uh, an experiment that ultimately failed, as we now can appreciate, but nonetheless experimenting with uh, these liberalizing reforms from a position of strength, so, so we wanted to be able to cluster the region analytically in a way that wasn't delineated just solely along geographical lines, cultural lines, levels of economic development, and through a lot of um, debate and discussion and thinking and rethinking, the way in which we have divvied up the region actually is, as you noted, um, by what we call developmental clusters, so developmental statism. Developmental militarism, developmental Britannia, which are Hong Kong, uh, Singapore, and Malaysia, and developmental socialism. And on one level, the way in which we divide up the region into these clusters is empirical. I think there's quite a bit of descriptive similarity between the cases, enough descriptive similarity between the cases to warrant that they be um, analyzed together. So, you know, developmental socialism, for instance while Vietnam, Cambodia, and China vary quite widely in terms of level of economic development, type of economic development, and indeed even the kinds of political institutions that have been put into place, they are nonetheless bound by a common socialist ideology. They are bound by a revolutionary history. They are bound by certain kinds of political economic institutions, for instance, the absence of any kind of elections or any kind of electoral mechanism that we see, for instance, in developmental Britannia. Right. And developmental Britannia, again, wildly divergent in terms of the kinds of cases uh, and the countries in there with respect to level of economic development and so on, Hong Kong, Malaysia, and Singapore, but they too are bound by a common tradition of certainly English, British colonialism, and a colonial legacy of legalism and a set of institutions. Particularly, adherence to legal institutions and the rule of law that set those cases apart from, say, developmental status uh, cases, Taiwan, South Korea, and Japan, which are uh, you know are distinguished by the form of political economic development, the role of developmental states in guiding their post-war economic transformations and so forth. Now, so on one level, they are descriptive, uh, and the clusters mirror their empirical realities. Um, But we also argue that they help explain the pathways that we see. Uh, And so, you know, without going into too much detail, because again, I think the book covers it in really quite a rich sweeping historical take on these sorts of things. But that the distinctive characteristics of each cluster helps explain distinctive pathways of democratic transformation, or in some cases, six of the 12, uh, steadfast democratic avoidance, right? And so it is the clusters themselves become uh, sources of explanation. They've become uh, a way for us to really outline the causal argument that we wanna make.
0: Thank you so much for that. I think you have provided many rich insights. Now two of the cases that might appear as particularly puzzling, certainly to observers and analysts over here in Europe, are Singapore and China. As you mentioned, the former country has reached spectacular levels of economic development, but has by and large avoided making democratic concessions, whereas China has obvious institutional strength and can also look back at a highly impressive track record Of success in terms of economic development in recent decades. And these two factors could give it sufficient confidence to make democratic concessions. But the Chinese regime has, in fact, avoided uh, such attempts. And if anything, it has moved in the opposite direction in recent years. So, could I ask you to speak a bit about how these two seemingly odd cases might be explained, how they might fit into the analytical framework that you develop in the book? Or would you perhaps consider them outliers in some important ways?
1: Um, That's a great question. Um, Both Dan and I would consider Singapore and China for different reasons to be ideal candidate cases to pursue democracy through strength, right? So if we were to think about it in terms of a thought experiment, and recently Dan and I um, penned an essay that's on the Princeton University press site, which published the book, in which we offer this thought experiment. If the Chinese Communist Party were to concede free and fair elections today, is there any conceivable way that the CCP could ever lose those elections? Right? It just strikes us that there's no conceivable way that they would lose that. In fact, if the CCP were to initiate meaningful democratic reforms right now, the party would in fact stay in power, and it would stay in power through a new legitimating formula that is through democratic uh, elections and multi-party elections. Um, The same could be asked of of the PAP. Um, If the PAP in Singapore were to more intentionally level the political playing field, now there already are elections that occur in Singapore, so it's it's a different kind of political economy. Again, this is why clustering matters. This is a, a country that does adhere to the rule of law. There is remarkably low levels of corruption and so forth. But It is also the case that elections, uh, while they are held regularly, are far from free and fair. This is a very uneven playing field and by any measure would not be considered a liberal democracy. So in both cases, if these regimes were to concede meaningful and substantive democratic reforms, is there any way that they would lose power? It seems to us that they would both remain in power and indeed both economies and both societies continue to flourish and prosper and so forth. So the question is why haven't they? And one way to think about it would be to say that they were outliers. Another, which is what we try to do in the book, is to explain why this isn't the case and to explain it beyond just simply um, idiosyncratic outlying characteristics like you know, uh, this particular leader is just um, uh, uh, prone to you know, more autocratic tendencies. So take, for instance, in the case of Singapore, the argument that we make there is that the strong legalist traditions there actually are a double-edged sword in one sense, these strong legalist traditions have provided for all of the things that I've just described, the rule of law, um, the importance of um, institutional impartiality, the early institutionalization of some form of electoral mechanism. But one of the things that we see across all of the development of Britannia cases is that, while on the one hand, the strong legalist tradition allows for these economies and these societies to develop and flourish in a certain way, it also uh, precludes then the possibility of democratic form or at least the attractiveness of the choice of democratizing uh, through strength. So the PAP, uh, as we describe it, you know, has received very weak signals that it's at all past its apex of power. And when it does receive these signals, uh, it adheres to old strategies, which is to repress or to gerrymander or to manipulate rather than to pursue democratic transition. In other words, these legalist traditions are almost good enough, and they have done very well for these societies, and to then take the next step would be a step too far. Now we do warn, and Malaysia I think offers a terrific cautionary tale here, um, that as these regimes become as we describe it increasingly hemmed in as their societies demand more and more, resisting democratic transition or resisting meaningful democratic reform Can result in what we've seen in the case of Malaysia, which is what we describe as being an embittered authoritarianism that there comes a point where these regimes actually begin to. um, uh, Where they lose the opportunity to democratize through strength and indeed then hang on uh, and hang on through the repressive ways and the worry with Singapore is that uh, that may be looming on the horizon. With respect to China, a whole host of reasons, including the consolidation of political power under Xi Jinping and the seemingly um, untenable proposition that there would ever be any loosening of political power there. So I think there is a a sense that the the regime under Xi is just simply hardwired to, to militate against any form of political freeing up. The other thing, though, is that I think what's really important in the case of China and all of the socialist cluster regimes is that they are born out of a revolutionary history. And so for them uh, and for those regimes, there is a deep concern around stability and instability. Uh, These are regimes born out of instability and complete uh, upheaval of society. And so there, I think there is uh, among the uh, socialist clusters, the developmental socialist cases, there is a deep fear Of instability, and therefore lacking the kind of stability confidence that is required for a democracy through strength scenario to carry forward. Um, As well, you know, one of the signals that we do point to are geopolitical signals. And the geopolitical adversary relationship that China has now, for instance, with the United States, uh, at which in the center of that whole Ah, geopolitical um, tension is the contest between autocracy and democracy, makes it just less and less likely, from a geopolitical point of view, that China would ever adhere to that um, path. Now, you know, implicit in our argument in the book, of course, is that the CCP ought to consider democracy strength, and it ought to consider it sooner rather than later. When talking to friends and colleagues in China, who are you know. Um, Uh, seriously looking at a democracy through strength scenario, they will oftentimes point to the Soviet Union as, um, in the example of the Soviet Union, as, you know, providing important lessons as to why they should not democratize that. What we saw there was essentially through uh, glasnost and perestroika was, you know, the, the, the invitation for complete instability. And indeed, you know, we've seen since then a political economy that has been rocky at best. And, So from the point of view of the Chinese, this is a route they would not want to take. Our argument is that, no, the CPSU and the Soviet Mm -hmm. Union, uh, it wasn't just a matter of conceding democracy, but rather they conceded democracy when it was too late. And that, in fact, if there's any lesson to be learned from the Soviet example that we hope the CCP will heed, is that by hanging on too long. By unleashing glasnost and perestroika when the CPSU did, was at a time when the regime actually was already unstable and weak, and all it did was unleash these unstabilizing or destabilizing political pressures that then hasten the demise of the regime and indeed um, the obsolescence of the political party. What the CCP should learn is that you should democratize sooner rather than later. You should democratize when you are uh, truly strong, when you're legitimate, when you're popular and so forth, uh, because that's the way to be able to hang on to political power.
0: It seems to me that a key aim of your book is to try and understand Asian development and democracy together and in a new way. And that by providing a new explanation of this connection for a region of uneven democratization, you make an important contribution to the broader, more global discussion about democracy and democratization. Could I ask you to discuss how your explanation may differ from and add to previous explanations regarding the countries you study? And also how your research on developmental Asia may contribute to the general understanding of the connection between development and democracy? And last but not least, how the rich and original insights you provide may also help us rethink Strategies of democracy promotion.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's a great question. I mean, this is um, um, you know, in, in some ways, a reading of the book is that this is a pathway that is distinctive to the region and of a certain time and era. Um, but actually, the, the 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 theory or the the intuition that democracy can emerge from a position of strength is is something that we've explored in other regions and other historical contexts as well. And a couple of years ago, um, Dan and I co-authored a piece with Rachel Riddle who works on West Africa and specifically the case of Ghana Uh, and Dan Ziblatt, uh, who of course writes on conservative parties and the emergence of democracy in England uh, of a totally different era. (laughs) Um, You know, and, and, and in fact, we find resonance across all of the, these cases across different regions and indeed across different times. And so in some ways, you know, our theory is actually um, more akin to first and second waves of democracy than it is to say the common understanding of what the third wave of democracy was all about. So you know, I think that it, our book offers a, is a contribution to the way in which we understand how democracy emerged in Asia and one that's rather counterintuitive uh, but theoretically speaking, I think that it 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 builds on the insights of um, democratic transitions that have occurred in other parts of the world, and indeed, in other moments in 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 uh, even in pre-industrial uh, history in Europe. I think one of the key takeaways, though, in terms of the, what we hope to be a contribution of the book in tying together development and democracy again, um, is that development. Um, and sustained development and indeed equitable development in the sense that you try to mitigate or mute class conflict as much as possible. These are all features that contribute to democracy and that democracy will only survive if you can continue to uh, deliver development and deliver prosperity and shared prosperity and so forth. So there is really a symbiotic relationship between these two that development begets what we call demanding citizens, demanding citizens demand political transformations. These political transformations are only so good and those pacts are only so resilient so long as they continue to deliver democracy. This is actually, I mean, it's very very conventional what I've just said, but if you think about it in terms of how we think about the prospects of democracy in the conventional wisdom now, it's actually quite striking because in many ways I worry, as we think about democratic prospects around the world, we search for democratic prospects by looking for prospective collapse cases, right? There's a certain collapsism that has taken over the way in which we think about democracy and democracy promotion. That democracy is is best served when regimes and whole countries collapse. And that's just the wrong way to think about it. On a very human level, I think it's uh, the wrong way to think about it because the human cost of those kinds of collapses are tragic. Uh, But it also uh, closes us off from the possibility that strong regimes uh, that are not on the brink of obsolescence and of revolutionary threat are also uh, likely agents of democratic change. So when it comes to China, for instance, you know, a worry that I have is that the very same people that hope for democratic transformation and a better democratic future in China are looking for, and I think even in some quarters, hoping for the collapse of a nation. And just think about the consequences of that. A destabilized China is going to wreak havoc on the global economy. We're talking about one and a half billion people suddenly left in a very precarious destabilizing position. Um, It just strikes me that that's not, that's A, not the only way in which democracy can emerge and B, it strikes me as not necessarily um, uh, the most likely way in which it's going to emerge in the region.
0: Thank you for joining these important conclusions and articulating also these important advices. And thank you so much for being on the show, Professor Wong, and providing all these rich and fascinating insights throughout our conversation.
1: You're welcome, thank you. It was really great um, to talk about the book and, and, um, and it was really great to, uh, to get to know you a little bit better as well, thanks.
0: I have been talking to Joseph Wong today, who has co-authored a fascinating new monograph with Dan Slater under the title From Development to Democracy, The Transformations of Modern Asia. I hope you have enjoyed our conversation about this exciting new publication. Until the next time.